Thank you, Jonathan. Good morning, or good afternoon, indeed. Ah, you too, you know. You're, you're awake, that's the, well, some of you are, at least, so we can work with that. Uh, my name is Josh, and uh, very, and I kind of uh, echo Freya's welcome uh, to St. John's today. I wonder, when was the last time that you had to turn down an invitation? Can you think what it would be? I wonder, why did you do it? Was it a good reason? Do you feel a bit guilty about doing it, or do you think it was the right thing to do? Did you already have plans, or were you perhaps saying no because you were waiting for something else? Will you join us in a sermon series which we're calling Ten Gifts? And the point of that series is to take the Ten Commandments and ask, what if these are meant for our good? What if instead of simple restrictions, they form an invitation? And as when you answer any invitation, you must choose not to do something else so that you might attend. The commandments are in some sense given as gifts so that we might block out our spiritual diaries to be available for a life more rich with meaning and resonant with joy, a more human life. And thus far we've heard from Graham how the first commandment speaks of covenant, the faithfulness of this God who's led the people out into the wilderness. Last week, Mo spoke of the second commandment, the noise of the idols of Egypt then and now, and the security of identity and power that Christ offers us by his spirit. So now we come to the third, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And it feels very religious, but what I hope we'll discover is it's fundamentally about relationship. Let's pray before we get into it. Lord God, as we begin to approach the impossibility and necessity of using words to describe you, may you take these fragile, broken, and imperfect words of a sinner and use them somehow to the glory of your name. Amen. Recently, for a variety of reasons, I've been thinking a lot about the power of words and the difficulty of using them well. I've got, become familiar with the feeling, and I wonder if it's a feeling that's familiar with you, of having a sense of what you want to say, or having a sense that you want to articulate something, but not knowing how, of straining just beyond the limits of the language available to you to try and articulate something. And I sometimes get there, we sometimes get there, but often I don't. And I am left trying to describe a situation or an experience and simply lacking the words to capture and communicate that reality to someone else. I am left aware of the gap between the meaning of what I'm trying to say and someone else's understanding. And we strain for these words because they are important, because words do things. If you want to, if, if you want any evidence that words do things, think about the last person to use your name. Think about how that felt when they said it. Think about how that made you feel. If it was used in love, how it created or deepened a sense of connection which you have with that person. Or if it was used carelessly or with scorn, how it created a rupture. 
This Sunday is called Trinity Sunday in the church calendar, when churches around the world approach the reality of God being three in one, Father, Spirit, Son, when we approach some, the aspect of God which is perhaps hardest to comprehend, hardest to articulate, where our language simply buckles under the sheer magnitude of the truth of God being three in one. But still, we must say something because it's so vitally important to our faith, to the very essence of what creation is. And this tension between the necessity and impossibility of saying things about God is fundamental to the story that the Bible tells about humanity, about what it means to be what the Bible calls image bearers. In the first creation account told in Genesis 1, we are told that humanity is made in the image of God. To be made in the image of something or someone back in the societies where these accounts first emerged is to uh, represent them or point to them or operate with their power. So, for example, a statue might be said to be an image bearer of a king, but so too might an ambassador who goes on behalf of that king and acts with the authority of that king. Later, in verse 28, in keeping with the authority that image-bearing places in us, God appoints humanity over the earth. Then in, creation, then in Genesis 2, in the second creation account, what does he do? Well, that passage that we had read for us is what he does. And humans are brought creation and animals and each other so that they may name them. God has spoken creation into existence, and so our job is to describe that creation, to articulate it. What is it to bear God's image it is in part to name creation. And in naming creation, we create order and establish relationships between things, each other, and ourselves. If you were asked to describe me, you would describe me in terms of a people, whether that be my wife or my parents or my friends, or you'd say thanks about me, where I was raised, where I work. You would describe me in terms of other things, relationally. And in turn, you would describe as other things in terms of other things. That's the way language works. It always happens between people, about people or things, about relationships. It knits us together. And that is, in some way, the fundamental human experience, to go about knitting things together with language, to name things. So much of our politics, of our culture, can be understood as an exercise in naming and where we have conflict and disagreement is so often over a conflict over what things are called or what things are. Think about recent comments that Donald Trump made where he called, uh, he called illegal immigrants animals. That is a contested naming. That is, conflict comes from the fact that he is claiming something to be something other than what the Christian tradition would say it would be. Think about recent debates happening in Ireland and happening here are all fundamentally, whatever you think about them, about how we name something, about what something is. So that is the human task, and it is a task that we sometimes do well and sometimes do very badly. And as the Bible progresses, we get to understand that in that task, in that kind of difficulty of beginning to name what creation is, God makes himself known in that. When God encounters Moses at the burning bush, he says, Moses, go to your people and then go to the Egyptians and lead your people out of Egypt. And Moses says, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? 
Very human question. What is his name? Moses asks, how should I be identified in relation to God? With what God am I being referred to? And God answers, I am what I am, or I will be what I will be. God can only truly be described in relation to God. But here is some language, he says. Here is some language you can begin to relate to me and I to you. But my identity, the ground of my being, is God in relationship with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As if to say, yes, your task is naming creation, but I am not of creation, and there are some things that you cannot name. You cannot bring everything into order. You cannot articulate everything. There are some things that are mysterious. There are some things that simply are left silent. So Moses goes and leads the enslaved Hebrew people out of Egypt. The power of the name of God wins out over the power of the names of the Egyptian gods. We then come to the Ten Commandments that we are studying these few months, and they are given then to a people who barely know who they are, who know that they have escaped from Egypt, but are still trying to figure out what it means to be this new free people. They have escaped from Egypt physically, but their imaginations are still captured by Egypt. I wonder, can you empathize with that? Having physically left an unhealthy or harmful situation or relationship, but it's still holding some sway over you. It's still affecting the way that you think and talk about other people, about the world, about God, about yourself. Well, there is good news because the Ten Commandments are written to people exactly in that situation, who have had their whole lives dominated by an empire, by slavery, and now have to unlearn a pattern of behavior and thinking that has been the norm for generations. The answer that Exodus gives is to unlearn this behavior. You have to first go into the wilderness. You need to stop things before you can start anything. And foremost among those things, the commandments tells us, is you need to stop and restart your thinking and speaking about God. I was struck that often when we think about the commandments, because it's so, because it seems to be so full of thou shall not, thou shall not, uh, do not do this, do not do that. It can feel quite oppressive. But actually, in studying this over the last few weeks, what I found, and I don't know if you'd agree, but there is a particular kindness in the negative framing of this commandment. Here, at this stage in the journey, God seems to say, it is not demanded of you that you articulate complicated and poetic truths about God. It is simply asked that you resist taking my name in vain. In the wilderness, they have a chance to learn that it is all truly about God. And their first task is to stop, be still, and simply clear space for God to start ministering to them, to listen before they speak. The word for in vain here is shav, which literally means something along the lines of emptiness. So the commandment seems to say, don't treat his name emptily. Feel its weight the magnitude of his identity, the scandal that he makes himself known to us. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, the former chief rabbi, highlights that whereas the previous two commandments have been about establishing who God is and his sovereignty, the third commandment establishes that the ground of God's rule is his worthiness, and to be under the rule of God is to relate rightly to the one who is worthy. Unlike the gods of Egypt, 
The grounding and justification of God's rule is not coercion. It is not wish fulfillment. God does not own his lordship, earn his lordship by bringing about the harvest or bringing home a paycheck for us or keeping us safe. It is simply that he is worthy and that that is innate to who he is. Now, this is good news. This commandment is an invitation to live life as if the one who is in control of the universe deserves to be. And from that, we describe creation in reference to its creator. In hearing those words, we can then see the good in creation and the good to which it is called. So often in my own life, there's a temptation to take God's name in vain, to in effect treat God like one of the Egyptian gods or a contemporary idol, as a tool to achieve my own ends, to seek control over my own life or others, to dismiss concerns with, oh, God's told me it'll be fine, that's okay, we should just go with what I want to do. And whereas last week Moses told us about the ways in which we can sometimes call things, we can treat things that aren't God as if they are God, this commandment is saying, don't treat God as if he is other things. Don't treat God as if he is just one bit of creation that we can use uh, to seek our own particular ends. God is beyond that. God is the ground of all being. God is not a being. He is the ground of all being. He is beyond comprehension. God's name should remind us of our weakness, that everything we have is a gift from the one who is truly powerful and truly worthy. God's name is never to be a tool for our power or status. To take the Lord's name in vain is to treat God as if he is anything less than God. The Egyptian gods were a means by which the Egyptians could reorder the world around them. So many of our gods in contemporary society are means by which we can reorder the world around us. And all of humanity has fallen into that trap, seeing the world as something to be remade in our image rather than seeing our task as to bear the image of God. It's striking that the Jewish tradition uh, in the Jewish tradition, their response to this commandment is to avoid using God's name, almost at all, to respond with silence. And I think we can learn from this. There is always a danger, and I've been acutely aware of this when preparing this sermon uh, this week, that speech can be used to the glory of the speaker. I know how often my words, and even in some ways in particular, my words about God can be driven by ego and are spoken unworthily. In my discipleship, particularly coming from the happy, clappy part of the church that I am so proud to call home, I'm aware that I need to reclaim the value of silence, to come before God and not seek to justify myself or take up space, but make space for God and simply be present to him. Thomas Merton, the 20th century mystic, wrote mysteriously on this. He said, life is not to be regarded as an uninterrupted flow of words which is finally silenced by death. Its rhythm develops in silence, comes to the surface in moments of necessary expression, returns to deeper silence, culminates in a final declaration, then ascends quietly into the silence of heaven which resounds with an ending praise. I'm not entirely sure what all that means. Uh, But there seems to be something there. 
There seems to be something there that's saying the first response to God is not to say, oh God, you're this, but simply to be silent in wonder, to begin to hold the mi- and behold the mystery of God, to not seek to explain, to justify, but simply be before God, to focus on not saying anything that takes his name in vain, and therefore allow yourself for a time to be silent. But then, of course, necessary expression comes, and it comes because of who God is. In silence, we wait for the words that God will give us by his Spirit, confident of the one word that we may call him, Jesus. When he steps down truly into human language and human existence and allowed himself to be named by us, he lived a life of names. They called him son of Joseph from Nazareth, a carpenter, but they also called him blasphemer, Beelzebub. They called him king of the Jews as they nailed him to the cross. He puts himself under those who he appointed to order his creation, subjects himself to them, subjects himself to us, subjects himself to the misnaming, and subjects himself to death, even death on a cross. And he did so that he might be true to the promise of his name that we had been told to give him. Jesus, Yeshua, God saves. The cry of every human heart for salvation becomes the name given by a mother to an infant. That infant's name becomes a curse on Calvary. And then that name is proclaimed victorious in heaven. We read in the New Testament and hear today of miracles that can happen uh, by invoking the name of Jesus. And we, but we also see that the miracle workers knew Jesus first as a person and not as a power source, not as something to be used. They knew Jesus as a name and not as a password. They acted confident in his power, not seeking to magnify their own. They had sought not to use his name in vain. They had opened a space in which the word of God might minister to and through them. They had sought to bear his image, to rename the world as he intended it to be, under the name, under the lordship of Christ. Because when we do that, when we speak and act under the lordship of Christ, that is where miracles start to break through. That is what the kingdom of God is the Lordship of Christ coming amongst us. So may we meditate on the name of Jesus and be drawn to silence by its beauty and power. May we hear the words of life spoken over us, evidenced in the saving work of Christ. And may our meditations bubble up in praise, in word and in deed. Amen. Um, we are going to sing again if the band would like to come up. But if you'd like to stand, I was just going to ask Josh if he would immediately just lead us in that short meditation and silence before we worship.
So where you are, if you want to stand, stand. If you want to sit down, stay where you are. But become still. Become quiet. In the silence, notice the things that are distracting you and just let them pass by. Know yourself, beheld by God. Consider his mystery. Consider his power. Consider his beauty. As you're, as already you're feeling the temptation to become busy again, to justify yourself, to fill your head, your world with words, just just hold that back. Focus on not taking his name in vain. Focus on just being in the presence of God. again the words of Thomas Merton life is not to be regarded as an uninterrupted flow of words which is finally silenced by death its rhythm develops in silence and comes to the surface in moments of necessary expression having considered the wonder of Christ let us worship in necessary expression <laughs>